0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.church. Today, we are back in the set of sermons called Valleys Fill First. It's a set of sermons through the Beatitudes and then more broadly through the Sermon on the Mount um, in the months to come. And we should be at Beatitude number six this uh, Sunday morning. But I'm gonna skip Beatitude number six today uh, because this is a fifth Sunday and we have our school age kids in the room. So, welcome our school age kids. I, we're so glad that you're here with us and you're gonna get a chance to watch mom and dad worship Jesus and our church family worship Jesus. So we just are so glad to have you. Um, but beatitude number six, blessed are the pure in heart, has a way of, it's gonna lean into a little more of an adult content sort of a morning. So we're gonna say that until next Sunday. So we're gonna skip forward one beatitude and we're gonna be in beatitude number seven, which is Matthew uh, chapter five, verse nine. It's these precious words from the lips of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So let me just frame this morning by getting you to think about a picture If you can just get in your mind's eye a picture, typically there are, broadly speaking, two main parts of a picture. There is the foreground. The foreground is the thing that your eye immediately is attracted to when you look at the picture. It's the thing in the middle. It's the the, the, sort of the focal piece or part of that picture. And around that foreground, there is a background. And the background has a way of framing the picture as as a whole, giving context to what's in the foreground. Does that make sense? So I want you to think of this morning as we're going to spend some time developing the background before we get to the foreground. So the foreground of our morning is this particular text, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's our focal sort of piece of the picture that we're looking at this morning. But before we get to that foreground, we first need to consider what's behind it. And here's the background. Behind this call to peacemaking, from the lips of Jesus, behind this call to peacemaking stands our peacemaking God. That's what's in the background framing this call to peacemaking. So we need to take a look at that background, what's back there, but before we take a look at the foreground. And to take a look at the background, I want you to go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. This will be on the screen for you if you have a hard time finding it. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is one of the most clear and concise tellings of the gospel in the scriptures. It just puts the entirety of the gospel in some ways into one verse. And here's how Peter describes the good news of Jesus. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the spirit. And I just wanna point out and, and get your attention focused on that, that one phrase there in the middle, that he might bring us to God. Uh, imagine a person coming up to you and asking you the question, what is the greatest problem in the world? Like, There's a lot of problems out there. You know, I mean, There's a lot of them. And what, if you had to condense it down to the greatest problem, what would the greatest problem be? I mean, there, there are the problems of poverty and a lack of education and disease and sickness and war and starvation. And I mean, there's just limitless problems out there, right? And those are all serious problems. Like if your life intersects with any of those problems, you've got some major disaster happening in your life, right? So, so those are like legitimate, real serious problems. But what is the most You know, the the biggest problem, the greatest problem, what what is that? And and the scriptures are looking at all of these sort of problems out there and saying all all of those problems, the the starvation, the disease, the poverty, they're problems, but they're all symptoms of the greatest problem. According to the scriptures, the greatest problem is our spiritual alienation, that that we are apart from God. We aren't with God. We, We are apart from God. Our greatest problem is spiritual alienation. Our greatest problem is Isaiah 59, verse two, that our sin has separated us from God. Our greatest problem is Romans 5, 10, that we are enemies of God, that that hostility has now saturated and soaked our dealings with God. That is, according to the scriptures, the greatest problem in the world is our spiritual alienation. And that sort of hostility or alienation, it goes in two directions. In one sense, we could say that it goes from us to God. Contrary to how many people think about babies, human beings are not born as blank slates. That's not how we're born. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 7, when we're born, we come out of the womb with a mind that is set on the flesh, a mind that is hostile to God, a heart that does not submit to God's law. And and Paul goes on to clarify in in Romans 8, 7, that our hearts can't submit to God. It's not just that they won't, it's just they can't do it. We are not born as as blank slates. We're born and our desires are so distorted by sin that we come out of the womb with a heart that instinctively disdains God. A heart that instinctively wants autonomy and self-rule, but we come out of the womb not wanting to to worship God, but wanting to be God. That's how we are introduced into the world. When we come out of the womb, this is how we're seeing life. We want to be God wherever we are. We don't want to worship the living God. And if you're a parent, you know this. You know your kids don't come out as blank slates. Parents in the room, did you have to teach your kid to manipulate to get their way? No, you didn't have to teach them that. Did you have to teach your kid to punch when they get punched? You didn't have to teach them those things. You didn't have to teach your kids to demand they get whatever they want when they want it. They just kind of come out into the world, seeing the world that way that I will have what I want when I want it. And that's a reflection of our heart being bent in on itself. We don't want to submit to the role of anyone, including God, right? This hostility goes from us up to God, but even more importantly, and even worse, the hostility and the animosity goes in the other direction. It's not just that we come out of the womb having a problem with God, but that God also has a problem with us. The storyline of the scriptures start like this. This is just Genesis, 3, Genesis chapter one to the Genesis chapter three starts like this. Um, we are introduced to God. He's the main character of the Bible. He's who we're introduced to in the first verse of the Bible. We're introduced to God and this God is holy and he's good. And three chapters in the Bible, we are introduced to humanity that sins against God. And that sin then soaks its way into every human heart Post our first parents. So so we're introduced to a God that's holy and good. We're introduced to human beings who have sinned against God. And then at the end of Genesis chapter three, we are introduced to um, a God who, because we have sinned against him, we have provoked his wrath. What we're introduced to the wrath of God. It's, it's a provoked attribute. I, it, it's not something that when you look into the heart of God, you naturally see, you've got to provoke God by our sin to actually see this attribute of God. But we're introduced not only to God's holy, not only that we have sinned, but that our sin has rightfully provoked the wrath of God. You see this in Ephesians chapter two. Um, when Paul is is talking about sort of the condition of, of humankind, he says that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. In other words, we have a heart that is, is unresponsive to God. It just has animosity up, up toward God. We are projecting all of our sort of anger and wrath up, up toward God. So we're dead in our trespasses and sin. And then at the end of verse three, Paul goes on to say, and we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That, that when we are come out of the womb, we don't like God, we, we sin against God immediately. And then God then is provoked, that, that wrath is provoked and it is now resting on us. Now I can't, I can't read a phrase like, by nature we are children of wrath without a chill going down my spine. Because of our sin, so in other words, that, that the wrath of God is not an undeserved thing. It's a deserved thing. We have earned the wrath of God. We've provoked the wrath of God because of our sin. If something doesn't change in the way that we're relating to God and God is relating to us, we will one day experience the unrestrained, nothing held back wrath of God that leads to a person's total undoing for all eternity. That's the sort of hostility that is built in between God and mankind. And if that sort of hostility, if, if spiritual alienation is our greatest problem, here's what it means on the other side of that. that. That means that our greatest need is reconciliation. Our greatest need is for peacemaking. Our greatest need is for peace to replace the hostility between us and God, to regain that sort of lost relationship with God, to be to be brought back in, into communion with God. That's... that's uh, humanity's greatest need. There's nothing more important in the world. Every other thing is a symptom of this problem, spiritual alienation. And our greatest need is to be brought back into fellowship with God. One of the ways to frame the Bible's question, like the question that is underlying everything you read in the scriptures and what the Bible is about is it's answering the question, how are enemies going to be made friends? How, how is the hostility between God and mankind going to be dealt with? Is there any hope of rescue from God's wrath? Is there any hope of that? And Peter is showing us in 1 Peter 3.8 that there is hope, that there is a way back to God. And he clarifies what that way is. He says, and Christ suffered once for sin. That's how 1 Peter 3.18 starts. Christ suffered once for sin. Peter is pointing us to Jesus who in his suffering triumphed over our sin. The sin that separates us from God, the sin that's made us enemies of God, the the sin that's earned and provoked the wrath of God in our life, right? It's triumphed over that sin that God is doing something about the hostility that exists between us and him. And what God is doing and has done is he has sent, God the Father has sent God the Son to suffer for our sins. Then he goes on and says, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's a great five-word summary of the gospel. G- gospel in the scriptures just means good news. That's what the word gospel means. Gospel equals good news. And the old uh, Bible translator, William Tyndale, he used to say that the gospel is such good news. I mean, it's, it's, it's news that is so wonderful that it makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. That's how great the good news of the gospel is. But before the Bible offers us great news that satisfies us. It offers us bad news that sobers us. And here is the bad news of the scriptures. It confronts us with what we are apart from Jesus. In a lot of ways, the Bible pours cold water over our heads to awaken our hearts to just how deep and dark the whole of sin is in us all. And you see this in this passage, 1 Peter three eighteen the righteous for the unrighteous. Who are the unrighteous? Well, that's us. We're we're the unrighteous. In this way, the Bible levels humanity. When you read the scriptures, I think one of the tendencies we have when we read the scriptures is to read it thinking like this. I'm reading it and I'm seeing all these Bible characters in it and, and I'm instantly creating the categories of there's good guys and there's bad guys. Now, who fits in the categories of good and bad? So we're reading it thinking this guy's in the good category. This guy's in the bad category. This guy's in the good. This guy's in the bad. Here's another guy in the bad. We're reading it thinking like that. But, but that's not the way the Bible presents itself. It, 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 if you read the Bible long enough, you start to realize that's not the way the Bible is to be read. It confronts that way of reading it. In the scriptures, in, in the Bible, when, when we read it, the Bible makes it clear that everyone sans Jesus is in the same category. And that category is bad. That that category is the unrighteous. Everyone but Jesus in the scriptures is in the category of unrighteous. According to Isaiah, even our best deeds, like when our deeds are meant to gain our sense of righteousness before God, to secure before God our approval and justification, Isaiah says, even your best deeds are like filthy rags. Not going to get into what filthy rags means. It's just a graphic picture of gross. That's what, it, that's what it is. And he's saying that that's your best deeds. That even your best deeds are shot through with sin. Even your best deeds, if they're meant to secure your righteousness, they have no hope of doing that. No hope. Left to ourselves, we're doomed in our unrighteousness. Our unrighteousness is hopeless left to ourselves. We have no way out. The hostility is insurmountable. The hole is too deep. We're the unrighteous. But aren't we grateful that Jesus is the righteous? Aren't we grateful for that? Aren't we grateful that Jesus the righteous lived perfectly doing everything the Father said do? Aren't we grateful that Jesus the righteous in the climatic moment of his life offers himself as our substitute his life for ours, his righteousness for our unrighteousness. Aren't we grateful that Jesus the righteous willingly was pinned to a tree where God's wrath ruined him rather than us? Jesus the righteous has offered his very life for us, his unrighteous enemies. That's the story of the gospel. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus offers his life for his unrighteous enemies so that every enemy of God, when they come with the empty hands of faith, might, as as Romans 5.1 says, they might have peace with God. Aren't we grateful for Jesus the righteous? Aren't we grateful that Jesus didn't come to settle the score with us, but he came to settle the score for us? Are Are we grateful we have a God like that? who's not out to settle scores with his enemy, but to settle the score for his enemies. Can, can you just get in your mind's eye, Jesus there hanging up on the tree, hanging up on the cross, his, his wrist and hands, his wrists pierced for us. His, his side pierced for us. Those piercings are the price he gladly paid for peacemaking that he gladly paid for peacemaking. The gospel announces good news of a great exchange. Here's the great exchange. God comes to us through the person of Jesus and he says, can I make this deal with you? Would you be humble enough to open up your hands and to allow me to take your unrighteousness from you? I mean, would you just, would you just, oh, you to just open your hands by faith and would you allow me to take all of your unrighteousness? I'll remove all of that from you. Would you be so humble as to do that? And then would you, would you be so humble as to keep your hands open and to allow me to take all the righteousness that is Jesus and to put that in your hands to cover you with that righteousness? Would you be, would you be humble enough and open-hearted enough to come to me in faith like that, allowing me to do that for you? Can we make that exchange? If you're in Christ, you have never been treated as kindly as as gently, as graciously as God has treated you. You've never been treated more kindly. The the gospel shows us a savior who does unspeakably great things for unspeakably bad people. That's what the good news of Jesus shows us. It shows us a God willing to take enemies and to make them friends. That is our peacemaking God who stands behind this call to peacemaking. That is our peacemaking God. Now we come to our text, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Jesus here is looking at us and saying, hey, you who have experienced God's big peacemaking heart, Hey, all of you sons and daughters who've got out there, those who've experienced God's peacemaking grace, his peacemaking heart, here's what I want you to do. If you've experienced it, now you have the chance to extend it. I'm looking at you and saying, show that heart to the world. As God's image bears, as my image bears, God's looking at us and saying, take my peacemaking heart that you've received from me, that you've experienced in me and give that heart to others. Harvey Kahn was a professor at, I think, Westminster Seminary. And I I love this imagery that he used to use to describe the church. He used the imagery of a model home. Now think about what a model home is doing. A model home, a builder will oftentimes put that model home first in the neighborhood so that people can come into the neighborhood, go into the model home, and taste and experience and see what life in this neighborhood will one day be like. That's what a model home is for. And he says, in that way, a church is meant by God to be a model home. That the the life and death of Jesus, he he came to secure the kingdom of God. This is what he's ushering in. The, The new community that God is building, a new world that God is bringing. That's what Jesus died to secure, the kingdom of God. And the church is meant to be this model home where people can pull into the church, into the model home where they can see and taste and experience the new neighborhood, the new world that God is making. Now, what is one attribute of the kingdom of God? What is one attribute of this new world that God is making? You can say many things about that, but here's one attribute. It is a peaceful kingdom, isn't it? And the church, by living in this call to being peacemakers, has this beautiful opportunity to show the world just a foretaste of what the kingdom of God, what heaven will one day be like. We have this wonderful opportunity to create a culture called the church where wonderful things happen to unworthy people, where forgiveness is freely given, where enemies are reconciled and called friends, where grudges are let go of. That's the opportunity that Jesus is setting in front of us. And doesn't the world need more peacemakers? I mean, just doesn't like your neighborhood need more peacemakers? Like your workplace, your friend. I mean, doesn't the world need more peacemakers? In their book, it's called The Lessons of History. Will and Ariel Durant begin with a chapter called History and War. And it opens up with these words. War is one of the constants of history and is not diminished with civilization and democracy. We oftentimes think if we could just educate people enough, get enough good government in there that wars would go away. Not so. It is not diminished with civilization and democracy. He goes on to say, in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have seen no war. That's kind of amazing to think about, isn't it? Human beings just kind of like to fight. We we just kind of love to get the gloves on and to go at it. Now, when we're talking about war, we're talking about this propensity for fighting on a macro level, on this big level, like nation against nation, but it doesn't get any prettier when you put it down on a micro level, on a personal level, does it? Um, What do you want to do when you're punched? Punch back. What what do you want to do when you're insulted? Insult back. What do you want to do when you're hurt? Hurt back. Right, I mean, that, that is so deeply embedded into our fallen hearts. that This world, is, it's tense, it's angry, it's trigger happy, it's dog eat dog. I mean, that's kind of the world we live in. And that world right there is in great need of peacemakers, G- great need of people who are taking these sort of words from Jesus seriously. Let me just come at this idea of peacemaking from a couple of different angles. Here's the first one, the importance of peacemaking the importance of it. Let, let me just take a minute to connect the first half of the verse to the second half of the verse. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, happy, satisfied. These are the, per, the sort of people who are gonna flourish as human beings. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's the first half of the verse. Second half of the verse. For they shall be called sons of God. Now, this passage is not telling us how to become a son of God. The rest of the Bible is clear on how do we enter into relationship with God. We enter into relationship with God. We, we come into the family of God. That, that, that happens through faith. Th- through faith in all that Jesus has done for us. That's how we enter into to relationship with God. That's how we're brought back to God. By faith in Jesus who has suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That, that's how we become a son of God. This passage, in this passage, Jesus is, is simply telling us what the sons and daughters of God are. He's saying, if you're a son and daughter of God, you are a peacemaker. So if you're in here saying, you know what? I'm just, I just kind of like to fight too much. I'm just not a peacemaker. I'm not going to be a peacemaker. In essence, you're saying, well, you're just not going to be a son or daughter of God. And Jesus is just saying, this this is what the sons and daughters, it's just synonymous with saying a son and daughter of God is a peacemaker. It's it's just like saying Christians. This is just kind of what they are. They they make peace with people. They're peacemakers. Those who've experienced the good news of reconciliation, they live reconciling lives. Now, this drops urgency right into the heart of of this text this morning, of the idea of peacemaking. The connection is clear. If we're not peacemakers, we're not children of God. And just to clarify again, Jesus isn't teaching justification by peacemaking. He's simply saying the same faith that saves us, makes us right with God, reconciles us to God, is the exact same faith that moves us out toward people to make peace. It's the exact same faith. I love how one pastor said it. Conflict is common. Peace is precious. Therefore, peacemakers are prized. And Jesus gave them the the highest name possible. That the highest name, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. That's the importance of peacemaking. Now the heart of peacemaking, that the heart of peacemaking. Every six months or so, I think we did this the last time back in the spring, we're going through our Philippians, uh, the set of sermons through the book of Philippians. But every six months or so, I love to do this. And if you've been around for any length of time, this is gonna sound really familiar to you. If you're new to us, this is just a really important thing, I think, for you to hear um, as you come inside of and into a church family. Uh, Just take a look around the room for a moment. Just get a couple of the faces around you just in your visual frame and just look at a few of those faces around you. And those faces look so nice, don't they? I mean, they look like such kind, great people over there right? I mean, they just, they look awesome. I mean, there they are right there. They just look great. It is so important for you to know those same people that look so kind, so great, that those are the exact same people who are going to stab you right in the back. They're going to hurt you. They're going to wound you in ways that are going to be hard for you to even talk about. That Those exact same people. And do you know why that is? Because remaining sin is still in them and because sin still remains in you. So you're gonna do your share of hurting. They're gonna do their share of hurting. It's not that we should be pleased at that, but we should not be surprised by it, right? That that, that is part of living life with people that are fallen, that Jesus is in the process of redeeming and restoring, right? Right? So we shouldn't we should be pleased with it, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. It's just a matter of time. And we oftentimes say, if that hasn't happened to you yet, if you haven't gotten down into Cruddy Valley with people around here yet, it's just because you haven't known us long enough or you don't know us well enough yet. But you just know us long enough and well enough and we're gonna get there together eventually, right? And when that happens, you have one of a few options on how you're going to deal with that. And I just want you to take a good honest look at your soul this morning and how like your defaults work with conflict. Here are a few of the options you have. One option is what we might call peace faking. This is one option, but we can fake peace. And when we talk about peacemaking, I I worry about um, a common sort of misconception that people have with peacemaking. It's really easy for peacemaking to be confused with appeasing. And peacemaking is not the same as appeasing. The, the Bible doesn't call anyone in the room to peace at all costs. Oftentimes the only way to, to get to an actually a peaceful place is to work through a hard conversation, to call sin, sin. Like the, the, oftentimes that's the only way to get to peace is, is to get down into the valley, right? So if, if our goal is peace at all costs, if we're just gonna appease everything, all we're gonna do is be faking peace everywhere we go, right? So, so peace fakers, oftentimes what they'll do is they'll, they'll back away in that effort to appease, they'll just back away from the hard moment. Um, our staff, we, we have a list of, of what we just call cultural axioms just our staff here at Stonegate. And it's just, it just ways of describing what is normal operating procedure for us. Just the way we want all of our lives to, to normally go. This is just kind of what we do as people on staff at Stonegate. I just wanna invite you into this because I think it's healthy for us all just to develop. This is just the way that we operate as a church. And one of those cultural axioms that we have for our staff in terms of conflict in relation to conflict goes like this, that we are people who just, we run to the tension. If we've got a perceived wrong, we run to the tension. If um, we feel like we have been sinned against, we run to the tension. If that's just a normal sort of way of operating is we run to the tension. But peace faking doesn't run to the tension or to the person who they have a problem with. Peace faking runs from the tension and from the person they have a problem with. So, so peace fakers will go silent. They'll retreat. They'll just kind of stop showing up. You just look around and like, well, where did they go? right? This is what peace faking does. It just, is that slow back away. Peace fakers run from the tension. And as they run from the tension and from the person, they are continually making that person pay. So they are rehearsing that wrong. They're rehearsing that wound. They're rehearsing that sin in their heart. And as they rehearse it, they are pulling out the billy club in their heart and they are just clubbing that person over the head making them pay. And as they do that, anger, bitterness, resentment just has a way of growing in them. Maybe you could think of it this way. Peace fakers, they take the passive aggressive approach to conflict and being sinned against. Rather than running to the tension, they retreat emotionally, relationally, even physically at times. Conflict has a way of closing them up. They start running that script in their head They know they've done wrong. I know that person's done wrong. And the only way this is going to be righted is if they crawl up to my door, knock on my door, and they beg and plead for forgiveness. We're just peace faking. Now, another alternative, so that's one route. And just look at your own soul. This is my tendency, my default is to go in this direction personally. So peace faking. Now, the other way you can respond to conflict is peace breaking. Peace breaking. This is the more obvious sort of way to break peace. It's the other in some ways it's just the other end of the stick. While peace faking takes the passive aggressive approach, peace breaking just takes the aggressive approach, right? I mean they're just they're just going at it. Where where peace fakers run from the person and makes them pay, peace breakers run to the person in an effort to make them pay, right? So see that 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 how that is set up? Peace breakers. Uh, Don't run to the tension for the the sake of peace, but but peace breakers run to the tension and they are running to the tension because not to make peace, but for a payment. We we are going to get our pound of flesh in this moment, right? I mean, we have got a bone to pick and we are about to pick it. it. It is about to happen. They're gonna run to the tension, but they're not running to the tension for the sake of peace. They are running to the tension to bring hell with them. That's a peace breaker. Now, let me just take a quick aside here and talk about one of the common ways people inside of a church break peace. I wanna introduce the idea of an unholy trinity to you. This is one of the ways that we break peace. When, When we feel a perceived wrong, we have a problem with other people, we start creating unholy trinities. And here is how an unholy trinity is formed. We have a problem with person A. There's a problem right there. They've done something to us. We perceive a wrong. Whatever the thing is, we have a problem with person A. But rather than going to person A, we go to person B and we tell person B about all the problems. We air all of our grievances to person B that we have with person A. And in the moment we introduce person B into the equation, we're airing our grievances here rather than there. We have now created an unholy trinity. We have three people involved in this conflict at this point. That that is an unholy trinity. And introducing unholy trinities to your conflict moments will always break peace among a body. It'll always do it. And and can we all just just feel this for a minute? There is inside of, I think, every human being, just a, a quickness to go to person B. Now, why is that? It's just, it's so much easier to talk about person A than to talk to person A, right? I mean, we're we're kind of building our coalition over here. We've got a person empathizing with us. Yeah, person A is terrible. I'd kill him too. I mean, it's just so much easier to talk about that person rather than to talk to that person. But as soon as you go that route, that unholy trinity is formed. In that moment, you have just broken peace. Now, let me turn this whole thing around. If you live within any group of people long enough, you are going to find people coming to you, making you the third part of that unholy trinity. And why is that? Because it's just easier to talk to you than it is the person they have a problem with. So they're gonna talk to you about it. They're gonna air all their grievances. They're gonna do all that, right? Now, what do we do when somebody comes to us and they pull us into the unholy trinity? that they create the unholy trinity and we're the third part of the trinity. So here's another just cultural axiom that we have in our staff. And I, I would just love for our church to adopt this axiom. This just way of, operating. this is a standard operating procedure in our church family. Uh, we have another uh, axiom in, in terms of uh, conflict. And when that unholy trinity is created, and here's the axiom, it, we just call it the 24 hour rule, the 24 hour rule when we're introduced into that that conflict, we're the third party, the 24-hour rule is us just looking at the person who just aired their grievances about person A, but we're person B and we look at them and we say this, you now have 24 hours to go to that person about the conflict you have. And if you don't do that in 24 hours, I'm going to the person in 24 hours. Now, can you imagine how much conflict would be averted, hostility would be averted if we would live that way. Can you imagine how many reputations would not be ripped to shreds if we would actually live that way? Can you imagine the sort of unity that would be built across the family if we all knew, if if somebody's talking about me to someone else, that someone else is going to be very proactive. 24 hours, they're gonna be pointing that person back to the source of the problem. Kid, can you And I know that it's a hard and awkward thing to do to tell a person, I wanna empathize with you, but I'm not the person you have a problem with. It's that person. And now you've got 24 hours to go talk to him Where I'm gonna do it. I know that's a hard thing. So I'll just be your fall guy. You can just blame it on me, right? You can just say, hey, Rodney, he's making me do it. I don't even wanna do it, but he's making, I'll be your fall guy. I just want us to be a church who protects unity in that way. If I ever come to you and I air a grievance to person, you, the person B, about person A, would you just please look at me and say, Rodney, you're now on the clock. <laughs> 24 hours, man, and it's going down. I, I, just, can we make that a normal sort of standard operating procedure? Just the way we do things around here, just adopting that 24-hour rule? That, that's peace-breaking, peace-breaking. Now, the third option is peacemaking, peacemaking. Not not peace-faking, not peace-breaking, but peace-making. And this is what Jesus has called the church to do and to be as a little outpost of heaven, as a foretaste of what the kingdom of God will be like when it comes in its fullness. We're not to be people who fake or break peace, but who make peace. Like When we're sinned against, when we're wounded, when we're hurt, we aren't to run from the person and make them pay. We aren't to run to the person and make them pay. Rather, we're to run to the person and aggressively give grace to the person. That's peacemaking. Um, there, there's an interesting passage in Romans 12, uh, verse 18, where Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's the Bible's call to peacemaking. Live peaceably with everyone. With with everyone, live peaceably with them. But I love what he says at the beginning of that verse. He says, if possible, if possible. He's saying if possible, because Paul knows in the short term, peace is not always possible. It's, It's not always possible in the short term. Okay, but church, hear what I'm about to say next. If you're a Christian and you have a relationship where peace right now is not possible, the impossibility of peace is never to be because you have closed the door for it. Now just think about your relationships, where you might have closed the door to peace. If you're a Christian, your son or daughter of God, you are a peacemaker. That impossibility, if it's not possible, that impossibility of peace can't be because we have closed the door to peace. As a peacemaker, we are the people who are pleading with God for a breakthrough. We're keeping our hearts right there at the line, ready for peace to be had. We're consistently asking God this week, this month, this year, what can I do to strive for peace where there's hostility currently? What can I do to bring more peace to this relationship? God, how would you, you just name it and I'll do it. That's the heart of a peacemaker. This is how a peacemaker operates in life. You know, part of what makes peacemaking so hard is that it forces us to deal with with our resentments, our the, the people that we have just carried bitterness with for so long. It forces us to ask the question, Am I going to hold that grudge, nurse that bitterness, or am I going to forgive? And I, I was just talking to somebody between services. We were just talking about this. And the, the last year and a half for me, I have been confronted with bitterness and resentment in me more than at any other season in my life. And it has been so, so hard. And I've constantly fought that feeling of, it just feels better to nurse that grudge than to forgive. I mean, in the short term, it just feels better for me to do that. I don't know what it is, but there's like an immediate payoff that just feels so much better than forgiving. And you know why that is? It's because forgiveness, that's a form of suffering. When you forgive another person, you are saying, I will not make you pay. I will do the paying for you. That's what forgiveness is. And you know what? Ironically, I don't think you ever look more like Jesus than when you're saying that to another person. When you're saying, you know what? I won't make you pay for this wrong. I'll do all the paying for you so that peace can be established here, so that peace can replace the hostility. Another reason why peacemaking is so hard is because it forces us to deal with our selfishness. You know, peace fakers and peace breakers look really different on the surface because one is retreating from tension. The other is like running to it, bringing hell with them, you know? They look so different. But but really, if you pry down below the surface, their heart is really the same that they are both looking through a lens that, is, that, that has like a self-orientation. That they're both looking at it, asking the question, what, what, am, what do I need and what am I gonna get out of this moment? How am I going to protect myself? How am I gonna make sure my rights are secured? How am I gonna make sure all of that happens? It's a very self-oriented lens. And, and we can never be a peacemaker if the dominant lens we're looking through is self. The only way to get to peacemaking is when our lens changes from what do I need? What am I gonna get out of this to what would God wanna get out of this? What what would he want in this moment from me in this moment? What would he want from me? God, you just say what to do and I'll do it. That's the heart of a peacemaker. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones describe this. He says it this way. And I just, this paragraph is gold. Just listen to this with just, sensitive ears and an open heart. He says this, perhaps I can best explain it like this. The peacemaker is one who is not always looking at everything in terms of the effect it has upon himself. I'm gonna read that sentence again. The peacemaker is one who is not always looking at everything in terms of the effect it has upon himself. Now, is not that the whole trouble with us by nature? We look at everything as it affects us. Just that self orientation. What is the reaction upon me? What is it going to mean for me? And the moment we think like this, there is of necessity war, because everybody else is doing the same thing. They're thinking about what's in it for them. What do they need? What are their rights? What are their... You're thinking about what do you need? What are your rights? What do... You... And, and when everybody thinks like that, there is of necessity, this war that ensues, this fight that goes down. He goes on, that is the explanation of all the quarreling and discord. James would agree with that, the book of James. Everybody looks at it from, from their self-centered point of view. Is this fair to me? Am I having my rights and dues? The first thing, therefore, we must say about the peacemaker is that he has an entirely new view of himself. Here's the new view of himself. He has forgotten himself. Church, may we be people who can get over ourselves, who can just forget ourselves, our rights, our demands, what we want and get all the way to God. Like, God, what do you want? What, what do you want? Now, let me end. This is the last two minutes right here. The surrender of peacemaking. The surrender of peacemaking. To be a peacemaker, you don't need to develop primarily new skills, new techniques to kind of fix your relational problems. To be a peacemaker, we need the peacemaking grace of God to get all the way down into the bottom cracks and crevices of our heart and to produce in us a deep continual surrender. That's what we need. Colossians chapter three, verse 15. Paul says this, listen to these words. And let, let, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and, and let it. Like you, you've got to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That, that word let is, is alerting us that we can actively resist the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. We can stiff arm it. We can push it away. We can look at God and say, I will not do that. I will keep this grudge. I'm gonna keep nursing this bitterness. I'm gonna keep nursing these resentments. No to your peace ruling in me. Not gonna do it. But but that word let is also an invitation from God himself and and an invitation to let down our resistance to to open up our hearts again to God and to surrender or maybe for some of us resurrender for the 10,000th time to God. But to become a peacemaker and not a troublemaker, but a peacemaker, to to become a peacemaker, what we need today is to lift up our arms to Jesus, hold up our hands and say, Jesus, here I am again, surrendered, letting, not resisting, but letting your peace rule in my heart. Will you pray with me? I wanna give you just a moment to allow the spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. Peacemaking starts with us and God. Are you at peace with God? First Peter shows us the way back to God. Jesus suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us back to God. And when we come with the empty hands of faith, turning from all the sin that we know disqualifies us, and all the good things that we really think have earned us something before God. But when we turn from all of that and we throw our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Romans 5, 1 happens, we now have peace with God. Enemies are now friends. Has that happened in your life? Is there peace between you and God? Spiritual alienation is your greatest problem and your greatest need is for reconciliation to happen. And Jesus stands this morning with arms wide open for you. And for the rest of us in the room, who are you nursing grudges with? To whom is your heart full of bitterness and resentment? Can you, can you just get names and faces? in your mind. Now here comes your question today. What does it look like today for you to be a peacemaker, to image forth the big peacemaking heart of God? You know, it's interesting. In in Matthew chapter five, Jesus is about to take another step in our peacemaking. In verses 23 and 24, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, so it's not that even that you have necessarily wronged him. It's just your brother has something against you. You're not nursing the grudge against him. You just know that, that there's a chance he's nursing that grudge toward you. Jesus says, before you do anything else first, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Right, Jesus is just saying, hey, before you sing the next song, right, before you do anything else today, right, go and be reconciled to your brother. Go, go out in the hallway and make that call. Whatever it looks like for you to be a proactive peacemaker, go and do that first. So, oh God, would you help us? God, would you help us be a foretaste of heaven? God, would you help us image forth your big peacemaking heart? It's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.